Well, y'all know what today is, right? It's like Sunday, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. And tomorrow is what? All Saints' Day, right? Okay, some of y'all know that. Some people might go, well, what? Halloween? I don't know what Halloween is. And I just know, like in my family, we're going to be doing a really quick Halloweening tonight. Yeah, you got plenty of candy. Let's go. The Braves game's on. Okay. <laughs> Hurry it up. Why are we going trick-or-treating at 3.30, Daddy? Because the Braves game's on. That's why. <laughs> people are going, hey, we're not ready yet. But I am always fascinated by the history, and maybe you are too, when you read the history of how we get um, a lot of our holidays, and it just, it just fascinates me when you go back in history and how they got started and how they have evolved over the year. But I want to give you a, a, brief, a brief history of how we got to what we call Halloween today, if I could. So back some 2,000 years ago, around the time of Jesus, obviously when he came into the world, but in another part of the world and what we would uh, probably know as Central Europe today, there were the Celtic people had this annual festival called Samhain. Now, if you look up the word Samhain, it is actually spelled like Sam Hain, the name Sam Hain, but it's called Samhain. And Samhain was a big festival to celebrate the end of the harvest and the end of the uh, fall season and going into winter. And everybody knew it was going to be darker, just like we do, as when winter comes, it gets to be colder and darker. Uh, you know, nights are longer, days are shorter, all of that. So they came to celebrate that. And that night before was known as this eve of the Celtic people believed that dead people returned as ghosts and spirits and came all over. And people thought this is what happened. And they would put food, part of the harvest that they just harvested, out on their doorsteps to make sure that the spirits or the ghosts did not give them any problems. So they made like a you know, kind of an offering to the spirits. And if you went out, you wore a mask or some sort of a disguise because if the ghosts were out there and you would just kind of wear a disguise of, of some kind of scary mask or a ghost so that they would not get alarmed and just think you blended in with the rest of the ghosts. So you can kind of see how we've evolved into what we have today. And uh, if they... Uh, <clears throat> As cultures and people travel, like the Celtic people, and we, you, know, you read the history of people, they travel over the years, they take their heritage, they take their practices, their festivals, they take them with them wherever they go. And when they move to a new place, um, they bring back those festivals and those practices that they do. So as the Celtic people moved over history, they spread across Europe and landed everywhere from what we would know as modern-day Turkey and, of course, Ireland to Britain and Spain. And this Samhain festival, or a form of it, continued throughout their history. And as Christianity and the church spread all over the world for centuries, there was always pagan festivals that they had to think about and deal with wherever they were. There was this pagan festival that's a part of our culture. But now I'm a Christian. Now I have become a new person in Christ. And some of those old practices... I don't do anymore. So how do we deal with that when there was something I did as part of my culture and my heritage for so long? Well, the church came up with all kind of things to combat or, if I should say, to um, contend with these festivals. And so Christians have always had these alternatives to fe pagan festivals. And so in the 8th century, the, the church decided this pagan festival, this Samhain thing, is not a good thing. And it, it had gotten kind of crazy, and the church was a little alarmed about it. So they decided to make November 1st 
All Saints Day and say, you know, we're not going to remember, we're going to remember dead people like they do in that festival, but we're going to remember the saints and the Christian martyrs, and we want to remember them and honor them for the life that they live. So the night before was known as All Hallows' Eve, where we eventually get Halloween, if you can see how that kind of eventually came about. And as time went on, there was also known on November 2nd as All Souls' Day. Have you ever heard of that? All Souls' Day. And legend has it that in medieval Britain, the needy would go from house to house and beg for these pastries that they called soul cakes, and people would give those and agree uh, to these these needy people and 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 so as you gave me the pastries, I'm going to pray for your dead saints from your family. I will pray for them. And so that was kind of what was known as souling. And then there was another custom eventually developed that was called guising. And this is where young people would dress up in costumes and they would go door to door and sing or read poetry or tell jokes. And they would get food and money for that. So you see how all this kind of ties in with some of that interesting things. And if people did not participate, there would be pranks or tricks, and in some cases, even vandalism to those houses. So y'all kind of understand where the trick or treat thing came. Now, in the 1900s, as many migrated across the world to the United States, they brought these customs. We live here now, and we want to keep up with our customs and our festivals, so some form of that came to the United States. But from what I've read, it wasn't until the 1950s that it's really come to be more of a family-friendly kid thing in the United States, celebration known as Halloween. And you see many elements in Halloween today, the costumes, the getting candy, the trick-or-treat, all those kind of things. We see that as part of those old fall festivals from the past. And do you realize that Halloween is second only to Christmas in the amount of money we spend? Did you realize that? It says more than $6 billion is spent every year in the United States. $6 billion with a B, y'all, is spent on costumes and decorating. Man, y'all know y'all got those people in your neighborhood that go all out, and you're like, holy cow, they spend a lot of money, you know? And then, of course, candy. We spend that $6 billion when you think about that. So, since today is all Hallows' Eve, I thought it would be interesting if we talked about another topic and why we do this being a follower of Jesus Christ is why the Holy Spirit why is the Holy Spirit important so we're going to look at that today last week we looked at the importance of the sacrament of baptism that was commissioned as we learn from scripture through Jesus himself and established and practiced obviously in the early church even up until now and we looked at how this started in the second chapter of Acts Acts is after the gospels in which the, um, Luke, the Apostle Luke wrote about um, the early beginnings of the church. And we saw how on, in, on the second chapter, uh, on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people accepted Christ and were baptized into Him on that day of Pentecost. But before that in Acts 2, we read about the promised Holy Spirit came upon the apostles as Jesus had promised them in this supernatural, invisible way. You remember there were tongues of fire on their heads so that there was no doubt about the Holy Spirit had come in a supernatural way just like Jesus had promised. And then you remember they were able to speak in different languages and people go, what in the world is happening? These are ordinary people. How are they able to speak in another language to help these people understand? And some people even said, they're drunk. And Peter got up and go, no, it's only 9 in the morning. Not that that doesn't stop some people, but we're not drunk. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, he did this amazing sermon, which brought 3,000 people to Christ that day. 
Now, the person of the Holy Spirit is a topic that certainly deserves more than one sermon. There have been volumes written about it. But today I'm going to try to share some basic things we know from God's Word and especially from Jesus Himself about the Holy Spirit. Now, keep in mind, one of the things we learn as a Christian is about the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And sometimes we say, man, that's a hard concept to understand. And, and how, how can God be God the Creator and God the person in Christ that lived on earth and then God this Spirit that lives in us? How can He do that? Well, He's God. There's a lot of things I don't understand, but I know they work. I see the obvious. Like if I ask any of you today to explain the internal combustion engine, you would go, uh, well, I don't know. I just turn the key and it starts and I drive. And that's, that's what my grandfather, my grandfather, you say, it's magic. I don't understand cars at all, and he didn't, but he said it's just magic. But the Holy Spirit is not magic, but it's deeply mystical and spiritual how God can work to live in us. But it's something he promised from the very beginning. We hear about the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1. Now the earth was, in the beginning was, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, and it says, now the earth, verse 2, was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Think about that from Genesis, the very first chapter. The Spirit of God was hovering. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the Spirit is ruach, with that kind of sound like that. Ruach, that's what the word for Spirit was. And it meant energy or breath or invisible energy or invisible breath like wind or oxygen that we breathe in and out every day. We know we're breathing in air, we can't see it, but we know and it's something that we need. We also hear about the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament coming upon people. One of the first we hear about the Holy Spirit coming on was Joseph. God gave him through God's Spirit the ability to interpret dreams and there was something very special about that gift that Joseph was given. Or also another gift that came on someone called Bezal. Do y'all remember Bezal? Everybody's going, well, what? Okay, that's a, a, a Bible trivia question you might can get. But in Exodus 31, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge and all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage of all kinds of crafts. See, the Spirit of God came on this particular man so that he could make things for the tabernacle. That came from God, which is a reminder that all of our gifts and talents that we have, where do they ultimately come from? They come from God. I don't know if y'all heard this if you watched the whole game on TV last night, but after the game they interviewed Dansby Swanson, and he said some amazing things, didn't he? connecting with his faith that God has a plan and he was so grateful that God's plan included him playing baseball in his hometown and for the Braves and all that things but he connected that and it's always funny interviewers kind of like they don't know what to do with that do they you know it's like uh, do I say amen I'm not allowed well, what do I do with that but again Dansby it was great for me to have my son right next to me listening to one of his heroes connecting that all this is from God it's not me. God has put me and blessed me with this opportunity. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament. 
And the Holy Spirit came upon prophets, as we know, in order to share the plans of God, what is going to happen in the future. That was given by the Holy Spirit. And consistent in their prophecies was the coming of one who would be the Messiah by God's plan and God's Spirit that would come later. And we know that meant the coming of Jesus. And then we get into the New Testament, and the Messiah came in the form of Jesus born to Mary, and we're getting ready to get into that season of Christmas and Advent. And you may know from reading Luke's Gospel, as we always open up Luke's Gospel, because he tells us the most about the coming of Jesus as a baby. The angel Gabriel told Mary that she would give birth to a son, and she was like, how can this be? How is that going to happen? I'm not married. I've not ever been with a man and the, and the angel Gabriel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so Mary knows from the very beginning, you may not understand all this, Mary, but the Holy Spirit, God, and the, His Son is coming through all of this. Again, referencing the Trinity. So I want to share four texts this morning, and of course this is not exhaustive. There's so much more we can say about the Holy Spirit, but I want to share four texts that I show how the Spirit came about through, number one, confirmation in Jesus' own life, conversation, preparation, expectation, and revelation. So there's those five things I want to kind of get through, and you're like, five things? I mean, come on, you know, it's going to be a long sermon. No, just hang with me. So the first one is confirmation, and we read this in all four Gospels, but I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and this is Jesus at the time of his baptism, which we referenced last week. Thank you, that's on the screen for us. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is confirmation of Jesus as the son of God, not only with visibly seeing the spirit descending on him. People that were there were watching something supernatural, a confirmation of the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and then hearing this voice, an audible voice saying, this is my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. So that is confirmation of God, the Creator, the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, showing us about the Trinity and how important the Holy Spirit is a part of that. And this shows that Jesus was God's Son, confirmed by the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Now, conversation in chapter 3 of John's Gospel we hear a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And if any of y'all have been watching um, uh, this uh, new, what is it called? Somebody hollered out. The Chosen, thank you. Man, they do a great job with this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, don't they? And, and, and Nicodemus is this guy that really understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has such a hard time leaving his past behind. And really being born again, as Jesus talked about. But in John 3, Jesus has this conversation. And we get one of the most quoted Bible verses, if not the most quoted Bible verse, John 3, 16, out of this conversation with Nicodemus. So in John 3, starting in verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. That seems like a valid question. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born 
of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Isn't that interesting in this conversation? Jesus is laying, I believe, the foundation of the future of God's kingdom in this new covenant that is coming, one in which the old covenant prophets predicted that the law would no longer be written on people's hearts. I mean, on stone. We don't need stone tablets. We don't need that. It's going to be written on people's hearts through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus seems to be talking about a future conversion, being born again, that would include being born of the water, baptism, and of the Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, coming as a result. Born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. These would be essential steps in becoming a follower of Jesus. And later, Jesus commissioned baptism as part in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit as part of being a follower of Jesus. And the early disciples baptized by immersion. And again, as we looked at last week in the book of Acts, when converts were baptized, they received this gift called the Holy Spirit to live within them. And then there's preparation. John's gospel, again, gives this huge amount of space to Jesus last night with his disciples, preparing them for what is to come. If you go to John's gospel and you look at chapters 13 through 17, and even into 18 a little bit, Jesus spends this enormous amount of time, and John remembers all this, but did John really remember all that? He was also guided by who to write all this down? The Holy Spirit, exactly. He was inspired, as God tells us in His Word, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's from the Spirit. And so, if, if I ask you a year from now to tell me exactly what happened in this service, it would be hard for us to remember that. But if you had the Holy Spirit to connect your memory with what God wanted everybody to know, He would connect your memory, and that's exactly what He did. So John spends an enormous amount of time, 13 through 17, and he was there... But the Holy Spirit let him write down this. And listen to what he says in his memory in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask God, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit. As he's saying, I'm getting ready to go to the cross tomorrow. You don't understand all this. I've told you, but you don't really get it. But I'm going to the cross tomorrow and all this is going to happen, but I am going to send you later this advocate, this Holy Spirit. He's preparing them. Notice Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another advocate. And he says consistently in that, if you didn't pay attention, he said, him and he, didn't he? Him and he, the Holy Spirit, is a person. It's not a it. It is a person. Now let me go a little further. About what's interesting about that is that in the Greek language, nouns have either are either masculine, feminine, or neuter. Did you know that? It's interesting in the Greek. Is it interesting? I see some of you shaking your hands. Good. You understand it better than I did because I barely squeaked by in seminary with Greek. Okay? But it's interesting. But if we go back and, and look at that Greek word, Holy Spirit or Spirit, it is pneuma. And guess what that noun is? It is neuter. Well, wait a minute. That's an it. 
But notice, if we read it like the Greek language said it should be the culture of the language of the day, Jesus would have read it like this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever in the spirit of truth. The spirit cannot accept it because it neither sees it nor knows it. For it lives with you and will be in you. But Jesus says, I know what the rule is. When you write this, the Holy Spirit inspired John, you know what the rule is, but you're going to go above the rule because God is higher than the language of Greek. The Holy Spirit inspired John to write. He didn't follow the Greek language. And as you notice, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now this was and is to emphasize the Holy Spirit is a person because he's one with who? the Father, and the Son, and those are masculine. They are all persons that have to be consistent with masculine and male. And you're like, oh, what are you trying to do there? I'm just reading you what Scripture says. It seems to be very clear. I'm simply sharing you that Jesus quoted in spite of the language of the culture. Think about what I just said. In spite of the language of the culture, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit move forward as one with their plan in spite of the language or the actions of the culture. And guess what? God is still doing that, isn't he? Despite what culture says about how language should be said or felt, it is the way God always intended it to be, and it always will be. He goes above the culture. So there's this expectation as well, okay? The last one here, expectation. And so in Acts, Jesus told his disciples the Holy Spirit was to be expected, a real expectation in their lives. Now, they didn't really understand this at the Last Supper when Jesus is telling them about it. But after he resurrects from the dead, they go, wow. And he continues to tell them in those 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension that you will receive this power called the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, in the uh, Dr. Luke, who Luke also wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, wrote Acts. He was a doctor, and he says in chapter 1, verse 1, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, there it is again, the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see where their mind was still, you know, a national power thing. He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said this, and he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And you know what? Exactly like Jesus said, when they received the Holy Spirit, all that stuff about being a national power wasn't important to them anymore. The Holy Spirit said what's important is that people around the world know Jesus and we become one. 
That's what's most important. And Luke tells us that Jesus made clear to his disciples before he left the earth, expect the Holy Spirit. I am going to send it. The coming of the Holy Spirit is coming, and we will come with power and be ready for that. And we know that it happened in the next chapter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. The disciples received that Holy Spirit as Jesus had told them, and they knew it. They knew they were different. How did Peter, after he denied Christ three times, stand up in front of all those people who said he was drunk and, and preached this amazing sermon. And 3,000 people came to know the Lord that day. That's an amazing thing. So we would call this the revelation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. From the confirmation at Jesus' baptism to the conversation with Nicodemus to the preparation of the coming of the Holy Spirit at the Last Supper to the expectation at the ascension of Christ and the revelation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe some of this has got your wheels turning. You're going, what's that man thinking Think about all this different stuff. It can be confusing. Like I said, people have written volumes about the Holy Spirit. So let me try to go to something basic. And I think God wanted it this way. Last week in our second service, a young lady named Laura Kate Chapman came forward to accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And I'm thinking she's about 10 years old. Now, Laura Kate doesn't understand everything about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But she understood that she had sin and she wanted to repent of that sin and be right with God. And so she came forward and, and Deanna, our children's minister, came up and took her confession. And she named Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And she was baptized into him. And you know what she received as a result of that? The Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't see tongues of fire on her. I didn't see her fall out on stage or anything crazy like that. Not that that has not happened. And the Holy Spirit comes on people in different ways. But she is a new creation now. She is somebody different. And I believe with all my heart, as you do who were baptized, you have the Holy Spirit that dwells in you now, right? That's what Jesus promised. I'm not saying this. Jesus said that. When you accept him and are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. Many of us remember our special day. Our baptism marks the day that we left our old life and started a new life. Not as a loner, not as an orphan, as Jesus said, but with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus now living, really alive in us to help us make our decisions every day. Before Jesus in the Old Testament, God showed His presence in lots of different ways, didn't He? He would do magnificent supernatural things to show His presence. But then Jesus, as we will read about during Christmas and Advent, Emmanuel, which means God what? With us, Jesus came to earth as one of us, was with us in the flesh. But then Jesus says, I'm leaving and I will send another, another advocate. I was your advocate here in the flesh, but another advocate's coming that will be with you in your heart and in your mind, as Jesus promised. And Paul confirmed that now the Spirit of God dwells in our temple, in our bodies. Isn't that an amazing thing when you think about that? The Spirit of God dwells in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's, that's intimidating, isn't it? I carry around the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins a work of transformation in us, a work of sanctification in us. And you're thinking, transformation, I understand. Sanctification, that's one of those churchy religious words, right? It's the same thing. And you know what another word is for sanctification or transformation? Halloween. 
making us holy. And that's appropriate today when we think about spirits and scary and spooky stuff. But the Holy Spirit is constantly going to be hallowing us, sanctifying us, transforming us to who God always wanted us to be. And the process of transformation goes on throughout our lifetime. It never stops. It doesn't start, stop at our day of baptism. All right, now I'm done. I can do whatever. No, you are continuing that process throughout your lifetime. The Holy Spirit, God's Word, tells us that He teaches us, that He counsels us, that He encourages us. He is an advocate for us. And I love this part where it says He intercedes for us when we can't even, we're so upset that groans can't, we can't even express what we want to express. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in times like that to God for us. Think about that. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And now we live with this energy, this ruach. Remember that Hebrew word? This energy, this breath of God lives in us. And that should affect every aspect of our life. The Holy Spirit, He's not something that is frightening or scary, but make no mistake, it's the most powerful thing in the world. The Holy Spirit living in people. That's how God chose to change the world through His Holy Spirit living in us. And the reason we're here today, because it works, right? It has worked throughout people, throughout history. Amazing power. So the question this morning is, the Holy Spirit, is He in you? If you don't know that for sure this morning, we offer that opportunity. He can be in you by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and repenting and being baptized and receiving that gift and begin that life of transformation, of hallowing. And maybe somebody needs to make that step today. So we're going to give that opportunity. Mike's going to come and lead us in a song. If you need to make a decision, we'll try to walk you through that the best we can. Are you looking for a church who we believe the Holy Spirit continues to work in all of us individually every day, but we need to tap in and believe in that power, don't we? And sometimes we forget that. We think, oh, I got this. But the Holy Spirit... Jesus left and said, my work is done here on earth, but someone else is coming to complete that work. And who was that? It wasn't a thing. It was a person, the Holy Spirit. And he completes that work in us every day of our lives.